Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast, guys. I've got Mike Chamberlain, Professor Mike Chamberlain from the University of Georgia, Wild Turkey Doc on Instagram. I've had you on the podcast before, Mike. I'm glad you were able to come back on with us. Welcome. Oh, glad, yeah, glad to be with you, Jay. Um, I want to dive right in. Uh, the guys that are listening, you know, obviously with the coronavirus and all the stuff that's hitting, there are a few people out there that are able to get uh, out and turkey hunt, uh, you know, around their homes and around their hometowns and what have you. So I want to cover some turkey topics. Uh, a few of the things, uh, well, I want to cover a bunch of different topics today. One of them I want to cover is uh your studies or studies that have been done on pressure on birds and some of the different things that you've seen scientifically, biologically, uh, that makes turkeys do things or change their patterns because of pressure, whether it be human pressure, predation, but I want to concentrate if there are some studies on how birds react to human pressure. Yeah, sure. So we have done quite a bit of work on how birds respond to hunting pressure. And most of that work was was basically, for lack of a better word, is we, we GPS everything. <laughs> we put GPS units on the birds. We we ask hunters to carry GPS in their in their packs, and we program the units on the birds to collect constant locations, and we program the units that the hunters have to collect constant locations, and then we basically just download all the data and see how birds are interacting with humans and how they're responding to hunters. And what we've seen is pretty much the take home is there's no such thing as an average Tom. They, they all have unique ways of dealing with pressure. Um, if you kind of had to pigeonhole it, there are three potential outcomes that we see. One, the bird dies, obviously is one outcome. If they don't, they either hunker down and change the way they behave ranging from everything don't gobble as much if at all um don't move much don't range very far during the day roost in different places every night all the way to i'm heading for the hills take off and go a mile use a you know completely different part of their their home range from one night to the next and everything that you can imagine in between it's really it's really highly variable across each individual tom so in other words as far as a hunter trying to understand their patterns and their habits when they get pressured what you're saying is with all of the gps data and all of the surveillance that you've done it it sounds like they vary so much that there's nothing really that you can put your finger on or are there some things that yes that kind of remain constant in the scientific world where you can say here's a couple things that i'm going to bet that they're going to do no there really isn't there's there's just so much individual variation um some common behaviors that we do see 
not all birds, but some common behaviors that we see would include things like, um, I'll go check that spot out that I heard that call from, but I might do it three or four or five hours later than rather than just walking over to it. We, we see quite a few toms that interact with hunters that end up in the exact spot that the hunter was at, but the hunter has been gone for hours. So in other words, the, you know, the hunter walked in, got close, called, the bird flew down, headed the opposite direction. Hunter gets frustrated, goes home two hours later, and then three hours from then, the, the bird ends up standing at the exact spot the hunter was calling from. We see that commonly with this bird. That would be one behavior. The other that we see that's that's frequent is that if the bird really gets spooked, think saw the hunter, hunter moved, flushed, whatever. A lot of these birds will, will travel a pretty good distance right after that occurs, hundreds of yards, and then they go back to behaving like a turkey should as far as how far you know how how far they move per hour or whatever. But if they get really spooked they they typically will travel some distance away from that site and then they just go back to their day-to-day business it was interesting um on your instagram either yesterday or the day before you posted a couple slides on a map where you had um gps the tom uh, in its roosting locations in relation to topography. And I know on the last episode, I kind of asked you, and I'm jumping around here, but I kind of asked you about topography. And it was interesting how that Tom uh, roosted. I mean, he would roost kind of on the sides of the ridges. He would roost down in the bottoms. Um, it was very interesting. It didn't seem to have any real pattern that you could say, hey, this bird likes this particular thing, unless I read it wrong. Um, what was no, your... No, that's right. Yeah, I mean... No, that's, that, that's, that's exactly right. That, that bird, that, the reason I posted that, that particular bird was because he, he was pretty representative of what we see, which is, if you look at their roost points, it's kind of like a, a shotgun pattern in their home range or they roost all over the place, at least Easterns. And they roost in all sorts of places. If you, if you look at those points, like you noted that there are some in the bottoms, the majority are on the sides of slopes, you know, kind of either. And, and that without seeing the site is, I know it's difficult for people to kind of visualize, but this would be kind of hilly, upland pine on the ridges hardwoods in the bottoms and these birds that tick bird which a lot of birds do in this area kind of roost mid-slope and that makes sense if you think about it they they roost where they could fly down they could fly up on the ridge top they can see they can hear their sound carries through the environment but to your point, it, they don't always do that. Sometimes they're in, you know, they roost in the very bottom, and sometimes they're all the way up on the top of the ridge. It's uh, it just speaks to how variable the bird's behavior can be. 
I talk a lot about roosting in some of my other podcasts, and I try and explain what I witness when turkeys roost. And curious, I'll just kind of keep running with some of these thoughts as we're talking. A lot of times, I'll see birds come from downhill, walk up past a roost tree, gain enough elevation, and then fly straight across so they don't have to exert a lot of energy. Although I'm sure you, as well as I have, also seen them go flat-footed and basically fly up into maybe a first or secondary limb and then kind of work their way up to the top. But in your studies, would you say from a roosting standpoint that normally that the, that you see them when they actually fly into the roost, are they trying to fly more down and across than, you know, exerting a ton of energy and flapping their wings and trying to go vertical? We don't, we don't really have a way of knowing that from those GPS data, but my observations have generally paralleled yours of birds in the field that I've, I've seen a, a number of situations where the bird ended up high right before dark and then essentially sailed into a roost site that was slightly downhill and, and that you know i've seen them do you know what you said basically just white foot and jump up into a tree but i have seen a lot of birds that ended up taking the approach of i'll i'll get above the roost site and then i'll sail into it which makes sense and then with that also out here at least it seems like these birds will keep working their way and they tend to roost here almost at the very, very top of these ponderosa pines, not at the very top, but very close to the top of the trees. Um, is that just a defense mechanism from say bobcats or fox or anything that might crawl up on the limbs with them? Um, and what have you noticed back there? It very well could be what we typically see, at least in, in the southeast is that a lot there's this kind of dogma in the turkey hunting world that hey in these pine type communities that we have a lot of roosting occurs in hardwoods but in reality what we see is it doesn't always occur in hardwood sometimes these birds will hop up in these 60 70 80 foot tall pine trees and they'll roost not at the top, but say midway or, or higher. Mm -hmm. um, what we often see is that the sprawling kind of hardwoods, you know, think broader canopy hardwoods that have branches that are easily accessible, but that are, that are stout or resilient, say midway or two thirds of the way up the tree. Those are often, often used and, that makes sense to me because the bird, as you know, they move around on those roosts if they can. So having the ability to move around would increase as you get higher in the canopy because the, the branches are more robust and, and sprawling, if you will. So that, that does make sense when I see roost sites and I, I try to think through, you know, why, why in the world was he there versus right over there? And sometimes I think it's just their ability to move around and also to get out of the roost. You know, if you think about it from their perspective, they need to be able to, to have security cover and to hide 
and and have thermal conditions that are that are helpful for the bird but they also need to be able to get out of there without uh encountering too much hassle so i think to some degree that that's involved although it's it's really hard to quantify because you know we have to get up in the tree where the bird was to be able to really understand that i've always been told that uh turkeys once they fly up they roost um, that they actually, biologically, their their talons or feet, if you will, at night, they kind of have a way that they lock they lock in on that branch, and it's almost I, 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 you can probably tell me the word, but it's it's like they really have like a death grip on that limb. Is that have I been told correct, or is that not true? In other words, in high wind and stuff, they can sleep and not worry about, you know, literally falling off the limb. I don't, I don't honestly know, Jay. I I don't, what I have seen is that at least from watching birds, whether it be turkeys or, or other galliform type birds is that they, they have such good balance that when they roost, they, you know, obviously they're holding on to whatever they're roosting on, but they also have really good balance. So they, as they as they squat down to rest and to and to roost, their body is 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 proportionately balanced in a way where they have really good center of gravity. Um, I don't know, honestly, the answer to the question about the death grip. I, um. I would suspect when when weather gets up and they are forced to really hunker down, I would suspect that they don't rest as much and loaf, you know, like they would when when, when weather conditions are ideal, just because there's constant stress on their body and, and it's disrupting the balance that they have. That that would be my suspicion. Another question I have is. Um... And forgive me for bouncing all around, but, you know, as we talk, just things come into my mind. So in a normal morning, uh, what I witness a lot of times is the hens will hit the ground first. They'll gather underneath the tree of the gobbler. The gobbler will a lot of times be up in the tree gobbling and gobbling and gobbling, and then he'll fly down with the birds a lot of times as soon as he hits the ground full strut and then very quickly does not gobble hardly at all and then after a little bit of a period those birds then will kind of work away from that initial spot where they kind of gather up and then they'll go off and and it seems as though they don't gobble as much when the hens have you know assembled or gathered under that tree that gobbler goes off and then maybe you'll hear gobbling from other gobblers around is that gobbler most of the time in that situation where the hens are kind of you know assembling below the gobbler's tree is that a good indication of the dominant gobbler i know we talked last episode quite a bit about the dominant gobbler but i was just curious if that's a good indication yeah yeah it would be to to the best that we know uh, that would be a pretty good indication because those birds those hens are are 
are assimilating with him, those other toms that you're hearing are very likely a part of that same group. In other words, they were with that dominant tom and spent time with him, but they're also all trying to potentially secure, you know, other breeding opportunities because he's kind of locked down the hens that are around him. Um, those are often the toms that, you know, they, as you've experienced in your hunting career, they're very vocal. They'll move around. They do spend time with those same hens strutting around those hens. But, but a lot of times we, the data suggests they're not, they're not breeders per se to those hens that are with that dominant tom. What they're out there doing is, is gobbling, trying to, to gain attention for themselves. Although a lot of times they're not actually breeding. Let's talk a little bit about um, gobblers when uh, they're strutting and they're, you know, spitting and drumming. Uh, I've always looked at that as it's it's a real um, show. They're trying to show dominance. They're trying, trying to show off for the hens. But what is actually making the spit and the drum? What What's actually making that sound? It's just a vocalization. That's literally just a what it sounds like. The drumming. It. This is one of the most debated things in, <laughs> in the animal in the world. <laughs> yeah, um, we don't really understand what makes that sound. You know, if you if you go and read popular press, you see all sorts of of conjecture about what's doing that. Um, all we know is that it's some combination of this, the movement of their feathers, this sound that's coming, that's emanating from the bird, some type of vocalization. That's really about all we know about it. Um, it's almost like their whole body just vibrates and it creates it, that sound. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if you, if you think about it, you know, drumming is a, is a subtle cue and, and it, it, it's something that other species do. Rough grouse do it. Uh, blue grouse do it. And, and it's supposed, we think, it's supposed to be a way where males can use a more subtle cue that hens can then use to hone in on where he's at. He doesn't need to, in this case, he doesn't need to gobble anymore because she's already there. She's close by. He knows she's close. Well, I'll just drum and spit and display. And when she gets to where she can see me, she'll get the full show. And if it's two or three or four or five times standing there together, they're often all doing it. That's a basically a strategy to attract attention. That's a, you know, the more the merrier. If we all stand here and do this, then we'll attract more attention than if only one of us were doing that. And that's, that's basic sexual selection. You know, the, the prettier, the showier we are, the more female attraction we'll get. And that's, that's the goal. Um, it's really kind of a cool behavior. And, you know, as you know, you can feel it when the bird's really oh, close yeah. to you, you can feel it. And, and, um, what I think is really interesting about drumming, which I, I actually, 
talked about this on a, on another podcast recently, and it really is a good question. Is like, I never ever can determine exactly where the drumming is coming from. I'm always off by a little bit, just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like the bird is is drumming, and I'm I'm thinking he's right there, and when he pops out, he's not really right there. Right. He's somewhere else but you know i'm usually pretty close but i'm never spot on and it leads me to speculate that maybe that's by design that maybe you know in some situations you may have a bird that's drumming and she doesn't know exactly where he's at either but she's going to go check it out and if he just continues to do it she'll figure it out and and i wonder whether that's a an adaptation for a bird that lives in such variable vegetation communities as a wild turkey. I mean, you know, the Easterns, they are forested environments and Merriams and Rios are in more open environments and ghouls. And it's so variable. I just wonder whether that behavior is something that allows hens to cue in on these birds and figure out, Hey, I know he's here. I'll just go check out where he's at meanwhile he's going to continue to do it because it's a subtle cue that doesn't attract predation because she has to be close to him to be able to hear it yeah for sure and correct me if i'm wrong uh i don't spend much time around turkeys in the fall they only drum in the spring is that is that a fair assumption yeah they'll they'll gobble in the fall obviously you know we hear gobble sometimes um but the really, and I, and I have seen birds strut in the fall, in really late fall, say winter. But I have, and I'm sure somebody listening will, will reach out to me and tell me I'm wrong, and that's great. But I have not seen the super in earnest strutting and, and spinning type behavior in the winter. That, from what I've observed, that's been mostly a, you know, that's a spring activity, which which makes sense. Now, I, I did get really interesting report this year. I had a, I had a hunter send me a, a video from a trail camera that he had on a food plot. And this is in the deep south in like January the 12th or 15th or something. I'd have to go back and find it. And this bird, there, there's actually three toms together walking behind these hens. And these this guy is wound up. Like this guy is, I mean, he is full on strutting and you can hear just the drumming is insane. He's really close to the camera. You know, this turkey, for whatever reason, was really wound up. And this was, I mean, it was cold at this point. I mean, we were still in the throes of winter. Now, throes of winter in the deep south, you know, certainly not like they are in other parts of the world. But um, but sometimes these birds get their testosterone gets ramped up for whatever reason and they can do some some things that are a little off script for sure i wanted to ask you i haven't um shot an eastern or an osceola yet uh but from everything i hear the osceolas have the dark you know dark much darker feathers um is there really any biological difference between an osceola and a eastern because i hear both sides or is it just a matter of their feathers are different colorations? Yeah, so if there are any taxonomists listening, 
I'll probably get some hate mail, but, um, but biologically there's not a tremendous difference. What you just said is, is spot on. They, they, they do have, have some differences in their, in their plumage. Um, you don't see, you, you see darker kind of patterns on the Osceolas there. They obviously they have the longest spurs of any of the subspecies. They tend to be a little smaller, um, but they also, you know, they also live farther south than any of the other birds that we have. So the the, ball, the body size does make sense. Um, from a genetics perspective, Osceolas and Easterns are more closely aligned than are any of the other subspecies to Easterns. So in other words, there's not a tremendous difference genetically in Osceolas and Easterns. Um, the one interesting thing about Osceolas is that they live in a part of the world where the growing season is basically all year. So, I mean, some of the difference that differences that we see in Osceolas could simply be that, that they, that here's a bird that doesn't really have a winter. They, they just, they can do the things that turkeys do here, say in Georgia in the spring, they can do that all, I mean, all the time. They have succulent green vegetation available to them all the time. They, they, they don't go through the winter stress periods that a lot of birds do in other places. So, um, but to your original question, they're, they're very simple birds. I want you to clear up for us. Uh, it, for a long time, I used to feel sorry for gobblers that had their uh, tail feathers, um, were missing tail feathers until I realized that turkeys basically lose all their feathers and gain all their feathers back in a, in a process called molting. Yep. Um, is it true that they lose all of their feathers and they gain all of their feathers back every time, every year, or is it twice a year? What's the kind of go through the process of molting for us? Yeah. So what, what turkeys do is they, which is quite a bit different than say waterfowl, for instance, so what turkeys do is they, they're hatched, they go through a molt process where they lose their natal down. They produce a set of juvenile feathers, you know, when they're poults. And then they go through a process where they continuously molt, meaning they lose feathers constantly and they're replacing those feathers constantly. So they don't do like a duck does where they lose all of their flight feathers at one time and they're flightless for a few weeks. Turkeys don't do that. So they, they lose those feathers in these sequences that are pretty predictable. Um, that's why, for instance, you have jakes that have the tail fan that's notched like it is because they're in the process of, of continuously molting those tail feathers. So the the feathers on the inside of the tail, say in the middle of the tail that are longer than the others, those are feathers that have been replaced. And the feathers that are on the outside have not. So turkeys go through this molt. When they're a year old, they've essentially replaced all of their feathers that one time. They've, they've molted all of their juvenile feathers into 
an adult. That's why we age turkeys based on their the barring on their wings, the their primary feathers on their wings, because when they're younger, the barring looks different than when they're when they've molted. So once they molt and become an adult, then they continue to molt a little bit at a time to keep their feathers in good condition, be able to, you know, to fly as they need, replace feathers that are worn out, that are busted, that get broken. So it's not to worry if a, if a bird loses part of their fan, no big deal, except that they use their, they use their fan for display. And they also use it as a brake and a rudder when they're flying. And as you know, turkey, Turkeys don't want to fly unless they have to. So, right. um, so that tail is really mostly just a brake and a, a rudder to keep them to steer them when they're flying. So, unless they lose the entire fan at one time, which that's going to be grown back in short order, it's not really that big of a deal. When you say short order, like I've seen a few birds in Mexico where literally they have almost their whole tail fan is gone. What I assume happens in that case is something's grabbed them and, yep. and pulled all the feathers out. Um, <laughs> I've seen it happen as well. Uh, birds that weren't hit well and we go chasing after them. If anybody's done it and you're running, trying to grab them and you, you know, all you grab, you end up grabbing anywhere you can, but sometimes you've grabbed the tail and boom, they take off running and you have about, you know, 12 tail feathers in your, in your, it can happen pretty easy. How quickly can they grow those back or will they grow those back? How quickly? Yeah, they, they definitely will grow them back. The, the speed at which they do that, it, it, there's no, there's no set answer for that because, you know, feathers require protein to replace. So the timing and the speed of that would depend to some degree on how much one, what his general body condition is anyway, and then two, um, what's his protein intake, what, is, what are his protein demands otherwise at that time, et cetera. So, but, but it's not like he's going to carry no fan around for the remainder of the year, particularly at that time of year because you, you, you do see some molting occurring during the summer, so... You know, it's it's not going to take that long for him to start replacing those feathers. Um, now, again, really the only issue I'd be concerned with is if he loses his entire fan, just his ability to fly is effectively, um, which would be compromised a little bit by losing that fan. Sure. I want to talk a little bit about uh, turkey's diet and their need for water. Um I, I'm always out here, out west. What I notice on my trail cams and, and such is that turkeys, especially the Goulds turkeys, they are always around water, and it always seems that they're drinking water. Before we started this podcast, you said something that I've been thinking about ever since you said it. Maybe not necessarily that they need to drink every day, but a lot of times why I find the ghouls around water, whether it be live water or water troughs or dirt tanks or what, or what have you, is that a lot of times potentially the grass could be, you know, greener or more succulent 
And I always thought it was just they had to drink every day, but I think I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not pointing out that you're wrong, but, but that is, but that's the <laughs> I'm case. I'm wrong yeah. a lot, so I'm used to it. Me too. Me too. Um, yeah, turkeys, you know, they get most of their, their water from what they eat. So if you have a bird that is living in an environment where they are constantly eating succulent green forage, they're eating insects that are, as you know, chock-a-block full of, of fluid, they don't have to, to per se drink like we do. Um, now, obviously, turkeys will drink as you as you just alluded to. Um, but when they have available free water to them in their environment that's not sitting in a tank or stream, they they don't have to go constantly access water. Now, as we talked about before we started, you know, when you get dry conditions. Um, turkeys are in a, a tricky position because at that point, what they're eating is uniformly containing less water. It's not just like, you know, well, the grass is not as green. Well, it's not only that, but insect communities would be impacted by severe drought. Um, all the things that a turkey would eat would, in, you know, would be compromised relative to, say, the availability of water. So in those situations, as you as you've seen, you get birds. They just show up and they they drink. Um, but we don't see that as typical in areas where free water is is readily available in the environment outside of just standing there. I want to take a second here and thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, my friend Cody Nelson, the glassing guru. He's the optics manager at GoHunt.com Gear Shop. If you have any optical needs at all, give Cody a call directly at 702-847-8747. You can also send him an email at optics at GoHunt.com. You can also text him at 602-399-3699. I want to thank GoHunt for their sponsorship. Also remind you guys, we're in application season. The GoHunt Insider is the best Western hunting resource tool out there. It's got the best draw odds and harvest statistics available. You can go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott. Just by signing up, you're going to get a $50 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card. I want to thank GoHunt.com. I also want to thank Kuyu. That's K-U-I-U. Uh, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, Kuyu.com. Kuyu is the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. Phonescope.com, I want to thank them. Use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. Onxmaps.com, use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 20% discount on all orders at Onxmaps. And then ApexMunition.com. Apex Ammunition, it's the home of the TSS, the Tungsten Supershot. That is the shotgun shells that I'm going to be using on my upcoming turkey hunts. Go to apexmunition.com to find out more. Guys, let's get back to the episode. So they don't have to drink every day, but especially in dry times or in dry climates, the insects, the, the green grass, the things that they eat are going to be a lot of times around those riparian areas. So that's why when I see turkeys and I say they're always around there, 
it may not necessarily be because they're drinking it's probably more because that's what they're eating and they're going there for that you know yeah sure yeah they're going where resources are of best quality you know give you an, an example like so our easterns on on most of i'd say i can't i'm sitting here thinking as we're talking I, i'm envisioning all of the incubation ranges that our birds that i've seen on any map that we've produced and what an incubation range would just be that's the area that she uses while she's nesting so that would encompass her nest sites and the places she goes and takes recesses at during the day when she takes a break from from sitting i'm trying to think of a single one that had a a permanent water source inside of them and i'm struggling to think of one that had a pond or a lake or you know i'm sure quite a few at some point have had a stream or something ephemeral like that but this bird by and large during periods of its life spring being a big one is relying on how succulent the environment is to gain their water um rather than i'm going to go drink it now as they get as we get you know later in the summer in particular here in the summer when we go through these really super dry spells at that point all bets are off i suspect that that free water is much more important at that point but it's also to your what you alluded to is it's also a habitat issue if they go where there may not be water standing there but there's water under the sub you know subsurface water that is going to cause vegetation to be more succulent than say several hundred meters away where it's drier therefore those birds are going to concentrate their activities in those spots okay makes sense um i've got a question about uh, some parts of the country it's legal some parts it's not legal regardless of the legality aspect of it um i think we can agree that people feed turkeys and a lot of people feed turkeys corn uh, throughout the year. Um, one of the things that's interest, interesting to me is I've heard people say when, when the temp, air temperature warms up because corn is a carbohydrate, turkeys will kind of stop feeding on corn because they actually eat it and it heats their body up they don't they don't want it they instantly they do not want a carbohydrate can you talk a little bit about that and um how that dynamic kind of interacts with how turkeys behave yeah i mean what ironically we use corn to catch birds you know so when we're when we're trapping in the winter corn is our go-to bait uh, of choice for the obvious reason that birds are attracted to it. And one of the things that absolutely kills our trapping success is warm weather. Um, if it gets warm during the winter, birds will become much less susceptible to using bait routinely. They'll, so they'll even in the winter, so I mean... It it, it's it's not like, oh, when it gets to 70 degrees, Jay, you're just saying even in the winter, if it warms up, they'll pull off of it. Yeah. Yes. Yep. 
The only exception we see to that is when we have complete hard mass failures, meaning all of our oaks, they're, they're, they're not producing acorns that winter. And we, we, we deal with that every handful of years where we just see a, a broad scale mass failure. And in that situation, birds uh, are typically in poor body condition and they will, they will hit corn more frequently, even when it's warm. But in most years, say the average year, um, when it gets 70 degrees in January in the deep south, which it often does, we will immediately see a change in base size. They'll go from hammering corn to just not even touching it. And, and when they do show up, they don't eat as much of it. And it, that, that makes complete sense. I mean, when it's warmer and energetically, they don't need all that wood in the, in the, in the stove, if you will. Don't, don't eat foods that are big fuel, just eat other foods. Um, and as the weather warms, um, turkeys, a lot of people don't realize this, but turkeys are, are almost like, um, a classic omnivore. They, they eat, they don't just eat seeds and green vegetation. I mean, they, they eat a lot of insects, not just pulse, but adults eat a lot of insects. They eat things like salamanders and small snakes and crayfish and I mean you name it. Lizards. Turkeys yeah, yeah. Turkeys are are pretty adaptable and they in the spring they're adapted to and, and even into the summer, they're adapted to eating what nature provides them. They so when there's pulses of things in their environment like insects and, and other things, that's what they shift to because that's what they've done for millennia. Right. Um, so throwing corn out there, you know, without getting into the bait of, you know, like you said, the legalities and all that, it's just, it really doesn't make sense to them at, at some times of the year to really eat corn because, you know, not saying they won't do it because they do, but it doesn't make sense to stand there and gorge yourself on corn in, in May when forever you've been adapted to eating insects and emerging plants and other things in your environment at that time of year. Are there things you guys switch to when you're trying to catch them other than corn, like weed or sorghum, or, or are those all carbo carbohydrates and they're all the same? Yeah, we, we will sometimes. Usually it has nothing to do per se with the the turkey it's usually associated with consumption by other critters uh, corn is our preferred but we've had really good luck with wheat as well um, sometimes we have to use wheat when we have situations where for instance deer are really problematic and they you know you get a handful of deer to show up at a net and you've got 10 pounds of corn laying there it, that's gone in no time and then your birds show up and there's no bait to attract them so sometimes when we have really bad deer issues we'll use weed or sorghum or something but most of the time we stick with corn because deer won't eat weed or sorghum or just not as much they just dabble with the wheat they'll eat it but they they don't just gorge on it like they like they do the corn okay um you said something about 
turkeys, all shapes and sizes, eating. One thing I'll, I'll notice with uh, Goulds and Merriam's that they make an immediate switch. It's so crazy. You know, I'll see them eating like a lot of dandelions. And, you know, when you're, you're shooting birds and you're finding, you know, the dandelions in their craw. And then as soon as the grasshoppers show up, it's funny to watch the bird's behavior. All of a sudden you can find them out in the taller like grass out in the meadows out in the prairies a little bit more than say in the in the pines or in the thickets as soon as those grasshoppers especially the goulds i mean they'll just key in on grasshoppers like crazy and then their whole bellies will be full of grasshoppers and you can actually as a hunter you can actually switch your basically adapt your strategy of hunt plan to I know where they're going to be all day and that's out in the more gradual you know prairies and and meadows and they're out there just chasing grasshoppers as well as I've seen them when they're chasing grasshoppers and I'm just curious your take on it they seem to throw caution to the wind a little bit more than normal because they're so keyed in on trying to grab those grasshoppers that I've seen them where you can get away with stuff that maybe you couldn't before. I was just curious your comment on that. Oh, I would absolutely believe that. Yeah. I mean, because basically what you have is a, a prey source, that grasshopper that's moving or requires the bird to focus more effort and say finding something that it, that doesn't move when they approach it. So I suspect uh, they have to be more vigilant when they're to the to the prey source to the to the grasshopper than they would if they were walking along feeding on acorns or something. They're just laying there that they know doesn't move. So they put their head down, grab an acorn, pick their head up, look around. They can be hyper vigilant. Whereas with that grasshopper, they're having to certainly expend more attention focusing on where is it at, how do I approach it, you know, basically because the, the grasshopper can escape. So I would absolutely think your point is valid. I want to shift gears here, talk a little bit about um, the coloration of a turkey's head and how a tom can be, you know, light blue to white to red and how it you know within a minute or two it can be it can basically see all the spectrums really within seconds it can be from white to blue to red to back to blue to to white have you actually done any studies whether it be observation or, or what kind of studies on head color and what's your interpretation of what the different head colors mean yeah, that's not work I have done per se. There, there has been some work um, on kind of the the head ornamentation of turkeys. There are several researchers back in the '90s that that did quite a bit of work on captive birds using captive birds. Um, in short, kind of the what happens with this bird is you know they their testosterone levels ebb and flow, but once they get high and the bird gets wound up that you know that that is an adaptation that changing head color is an adaptation to attract attention and if you i tell students this when i, I teach this in, in one of my classes is if you look at the 
kind of the combination of colors on a turkey's head between the top of their their head, which is often that kind of white, you know, kind of plate, if you will, on top of their head, down through the blue along their the sides going into the red of their their caruncles at the base of their neck that's it's it's a kind of a an odd combination of colors that you know we say it's red white and blue but it's not really always that like you like you pointed out it it often changes um but the contrast between those colors attracts a lot of attention so you I, I asked students in class, if you were to look across the flags of the countries in the world, what color sequence do you often see? And, I'll, and usually students will immediately say red, white, blue. Yeah, a lot of the battle flags that have been used through time were that color sequence. And it partially because there's, there's contrast, it's, it's invisible. You know, it pops to the eye. So, as you know, at least the first thing I see, at least on the Easterns, is their head, the white head. That's the first thing I see when they, when they start getting close. I see that that white skull cap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as they get closer, I lose complete sight of their body unless I force myself to look at it. I'm looking at their head because that's, you know, I've had some hunters and I'm, I'm a turkey hunter myself, I've had some hunters tell me, well, that's because the reason you're looking at their head is because that's where you're going to shoot. And I don't, I disagree with that. I, I think, and because I've sat there and tried to force myself not to look at their head, even when there's birds that I wasn't, I, I didn't even plan to shoot the bird. Your eyes you know, just so, drawn to it. Yes. Yes. It makes complete sense. I mean, yeah. that's where the contrast is. So the notion that the, the contrast changes to me makes sense because the bird is trying to attract attention. And once a hen gets to the point where she can see that head, well, she's there, right? I mean, she's, she's there. She's in his wheelhouse at that point. So uh, it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint that that would happen with their heads. And just for the listeners, and, and I want your take on it. When their head is red, a lot of times that means that they're spooked, that they're, um, you know, when they go full on red, they're, they're spooked or mad. Um, and then it's kind of been debated. I know the Dave Smith decoys, the, I use DSD decoys. They've been painting uh, decoy heads white and a lot of guys having a lot of success with the white head um, tom or, or strutter decoy uh, and then you get the blue the blue I always think the blue is kind of everything's just super super like it's a dominant bird when I see a lot of blue I see a lot of dominant birds blue white and blue head um, and then but you other people will argue the white shows a real dominant bird. I was just curious from a scientific standpoint from your studies, do you think there's any way to really, other than just observe human observation to, to tie colors to be, you know, dominance? I, I don't Jay. Um, I think, you know, one, 
these birds are not all the same. They, they look the same to us. You know, so you, you have a couple of birds standing there strutting and, and if they're, if they're all displaying at the same time, I find it almost impossible to tell differences amongst them that are, would be subtle like that. I mean, yeah, I, in fact, I, I saw a cool picture the other day that proves my point wrong. And that's why I'm, I'm saying it. I would, uh, a guy sent me a picture, a trail cam picture, and there were two toms in this picture. And one of them was clearly, his head coloration was clearly muted compared to the other guy. But a lot of the pictures you see, you know, they all kind of look the same until you really start nitpicking. And you can say, well, that one's got a little bit more blue than that one. That one's a little deeper red than this one. How that is related to dominance, I have no idea. Um, and I don't know that maybe a listener does. I don't know anyone that definitively can demonstrate that because dominance is not just color. You know, dominance is attitude dominance is uh body things, posture yeah things that we're not privy to when we hunt is what settled that dominance hierarchy whoever that dominant bird is we are not privy to a lot well we're not privy to, to anything really that caused him to become the dominant bird we simply see them when they're standing there displaying or when we're you know we call them up there, there's so much that could be involved with making that bird dominant. I'm, as we sit here and talk, and I think I'm a little skeptical that anyone has the data to prove or even suggest that the colors confer some sort of dominance. Um, I'd have to think more on that one. The red, I agree with you. I have noticed. I have noticed that when birds are suddenly spooked, that head goes red instantaneously. Like just one second, mm -hmm. it changes. Immediately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I've seen this, I've seen that with birds that were also um, fighting. I've seen that with birds that were strutting and then suddenly, um, one one day, this was many years ago, I, I had a bird that was on a string coming right to me, and he had a hen that was in front of him, and the hen had already passed me. So I knew, I mean, his his days, you know, his seconds were numbered. He was on a string. And a gray fox came out of nowhere, and I don't even think the fox was after the turkey. I just think the fox was... In the right place doing, at the right time. <laughs> I, I do, because it looked like it scared both of them at mm -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. And that bird went from being the most beautiful thing there is with color sequences on his head to having nothing but red in about a half of a second, and he was gone. Yeah. Um, so I, I've definitely seen that for sure. Yeah, we've all seen that probably a little too much. <laughs> The, uh, the, the observation about the white on the head, I, I could see, as I think about it, I could see a, a strutting decoy that has a lot of white. Um, 
I could see that attracting attention from from a bird because this the the sequence of colors and the contrast is very high at that point. So you got this, you know, really dark object, this decoy, and then you have this white head just stands out sitting there. Yeah, I could see a bird, particularly a bird that's not happy about that decoy being there seeing that and, and and it triggering a response because it's the contrast that triggers you know that's that's what that's about so i, I could see that bird looking at that and um and and having a reaction because of the contrast which is not entirely unlike say waterfowl i mean you know i grew up hunting divers um and and i still love to hunt diving ducks and it's your blocks or your decoys can be solid black and all you need to do is put a strip of white on their side and birds will come to it because the contrast is so dramatic that it shows from a distance so birds that are off you know quite a ways see the contrast and they come to the to the decoy spread i don't i suspect it's very similar with turkeys Let's talk a little bit about gobbling. Um, I, I, I've never understood the shock gobble. I mean, how they'll, you can, I mean, I used to hunt a uh, Indian reservation out here and me and my guide would have arguments. We'd have fun debates, let's call it, about... <laughs> about roosting birds and i just i love roosting birds and even when i have birds roosted i'm still trying to roost more birds just because i love the whole process but i would get out and out here a coyote howler works incredible to shot gobble them when they're up on you know in that prime 20 30 minutes when they've flown up and you know trying to get them to shot gobble a coyote howler um out here just works incredible um, and he would always laugh and say, why are you wasting all that time? Just pull up and honk the horn. And so we would have contests. Okay. You know, it's 15 miles back to camp. You know, you get every other, you get the odd miles. I get the even and we'll see which one works better. And I got to admit that the horn worked just as good as the coyote howler. <laughs> and, but I tell people that, you know, some of my Goulds hunters that are, you know, hunting back East and they're like, Oh my gosh, you can't use a horn. I'm like, yeah, they gobble just as good to a horn. And they're like, Oh, our Eastern birds wouldn't gobble to that. But talk a little bit about just the shock gobble and that whole dynamic of how goofy they are sometimes. Yeah, so so basically what's happening there is the bird is hearing a sound that's in the same frequency range as a gobble. So what we what we do is we we track gobbling activity using these what we call them song meters. They're basically uh and I don't remember if you saw this on, on the last podcast or not, but it's basically just a box that that sits in a tree. We put a microphone 30 feet above it and it listens all the time and it captures all ambient sound. So everything in the environment, it, it documents it. And then we run the, that through software and it teases out the gobbles. The, the problem is it teases out all the other stuff 
that's in the same frequency range. Mm -hmm. And that includes coyote howls, horn, uh, owl hoots, a cow mooing, a shotgun blast. Rail, um, railroad train, a uh, train yeah, going off, yeah, whistle. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's part of it. So part of it is the bird is hearing something that's in that same frequency. The other part of it, if you if you think about it, when a bird's gobbling, if they're really wound up, they are reacting to anything in their environment. They're hypersensitive. They um, they're 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 wound up. I've heard I've heard birds gobble at some of. The, I had a one time I was approaching a bird in the dark. And unbeknownst to me, I had gotten right under another bird and had no idea he was there. And I was trying to cross a beaver dam that basically had in been the created. Dark. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was a tree in the center of the dam. And I was, so I was easing my way. I had actually gotten in the water, mm -hmm. the, you know, the up the upside of the dam and was kind of waiting in the water as quietly as I could. And I got to that tree and I, I, I leaned over and grabbed the tree to balance myself because I was, I, I decided that at, at that point I saw a run in the dark, basically, you know, where mm -hmm. beavers had been sliding off. And I said, I can get in that and, and be a little quicker. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to work my way across and the beaver slapped its tail out in the water. So you, everybody knows what that sounds like. Mm. Slap, you know. There was a bird 30 yards from me that just ripped my head off. <laughs> you know. And I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't sound, and it, this was many years ago before any of this technology existed. So I didn't know anything about frequencies of a gobble or anything. I just knew that, now that bird had not gobbled before. I mean, I, that, I had no idea that bird was there. The other bird that was nearby was, goblin's head off and it took a beaver smacking its tail under this bird to get into that had to have just been a response mm -hmm. to there's a sound there it's loud boom i'm going to gobble in response mm -hmm. so some of it is is that but by and large a lot of the things that we use to attract to you know to stimulate a gobble happens to fall at, right in that same frequency that a gobble is in Do you think, speaking of the gobble, do you think that if, if hunters could duplicate the sound of a gobble more accurately, that if they just went into the field and just gobbled, now I'm not, I'm not condoning or telling anyone to do this, I'm just talking if it was just, you know, you and I's utopia turkey ground, that it was just you and I's and it's a giant piece of property and we could just do certain things to try and figure these birds out if you didn't hen call at all and all you did was gobble do you think you would call in just as many gobblers and i'm not talking dominant or i'm just talking gobblers do you think you could call in just as many gobblers as you could with a hen call well let me let me before you answer that with a with a perfectly executed gobble compared to a perfectly executed hen call, do you think someone could have as much success calling in gobblers of all shapes and sizes and ages and what have you 
gobbling than hen calling? I would say no. Why? And this bird, uh, and it, this answer will take a minute, but but it's a good question, and it, it actually owes to their mating system. So this this bird uses a mating system that is a form of a lek, and, and in Western, which I think, pretty sure we did talk about this last time, but, but most folks in the West are familiar with leks, sage grouse, prairie chickens, whatever. Well, turkeys use an exploded type lek. And part of the way, and, and, and the way that works is you, you basically take that sage grouse lek and you, and you blow it up to where there's groups of turkeys on the landscape. Well, they can't see each other, but they can hear each other. So, they maintain those leks and those dominance hierarchies that they have partially with goblin. So they're supposed to be able to hear other turkeys, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go find those turkeys, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I'm supposed to gobble in response to another gobbler because part of my you know, DNA says that's how we maintain our structure on the landscape. Right. So I think, and we all know this, if you if you turkey hunted much at all, sometimes you can gobble and, and you'll get birds that will come right to you. Right. Those birds are looking for a fight. Those birds are either a dominant bird that perceives the gobble as a attest to his dominance or it could easily be a bird that's farther down the pecking order that hears a gobble that, that it, it doesn't recognize and approaches that bird to say you need to you know you need to clear out buddy yeah this is um, my uncle's territory it's not necessarily mine but I'm going to come see who you are because I don't recognize you, but you better get out of here because if my uncle sees you, he's going to kick your butt. Yeah, and, that's, <laughs> and I, think, I think that's part of why sometimes you see, I, I've, I've, I've seen this a few times. I don't use gobbling a lot, but, but I've seen this a few times. Once I can think of that really sticks out where I just could not get this bird. It ended up being two birds. I just could not get them to budge, and one of them was not gobbling. So, and so I just thought there was one bird and I finally took a, I didn't even have a gobble tube or anything at that time. I just had a box call and a mouth call and I took the box call out and just, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You can just, yeah. I just shook it to make a kind of a terrible sounding gobble mm -hmm. and both kind of, it kind of rattles and has a real, at a distance, it sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it clearly ticked them off because they both gobbled and here they came. And I mean, at a dead run and they pop up over the hill and they're behind me. They, they, this is a long story. Like but overshot I didn't, I, you? Yeah. I didn't win this battle. Let's just say that. They, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but one of those birds, as I was looking out of the corner of my eye, one of those birds was furious. I mean, it, the look on of his head, he was, he was livid. Like it was blood, blood red. And the other bird, 
looked like he had uh, he was beautiful red, white, and blue. But that one bird was really he was ticked. Mm-hmm. And he pops up over the ridge, and they see me silhouetted, and they and that was it, you know, ball game. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking at the time, you know, that bird had been standing there for forty five minutes strutting and getting a little closer and getting a little farther and getting a little closer and, you know, playing the game. And then all of a sudden, when I hit that gobble, in his mind, that was his leck. Mm-hmm. And he was the dominant bird of those two. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, and when he heard that gobble, he knew his buddy was standing beside him and he already had dominance over him. He wasn't concerned with him. Mm-hmm. When he heard that gobble, it finally hit him that, I'm about to lose a breeding opportunity. I mean, not that they can think through it like we do, but it, he's wired to that's something. That's a bird that I don't recognize, and now I'm now I'm pissed. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to check him out, and it, and that you know he he ends up winning the ball game because of I probably should have set up different. But the point is, you know, sometimes you can elicit that response, but in their world, gobbling is not something in most situations that should attract a Tom. Okay. It's, it's just sense. something that maintains their structure. Okay. Makes sense. Well, man, we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, I could go on for hours, kind of like the last episode. I said I could go on for hours. Uh, I want to respect your time. I appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, I'm going to link up your Instagram wild Turkey doc uh, on the show notes of this podcast and, Again, uh, stay safe and sheltered and uh, hopefully uh, be able to get out and enjoy some of this springtime um, enjoyment here. Maybe get out on a hunt or two. Uh, And just thanks for coming on and and sharing with us. No problem, Jay. It was good talking to you. Take care. All right, Mike. Take care. Thank you.